Great. Well, uh, I think we'll get started. Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome. So first, I uh, just wanted to say thank you for taking the effort to, to get out here. I know it's a lot to uh, be away from your families and work, spend a week in Vegas, uh, <laughs> particularly off the heels of Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't know about you, but my, my Thanksgiving traditions are like zero internet in the mountains, chilling out with some friends, and then to get on a flight to Vegas in the most like electrified city in one of the most like electrifying conferences is definitely a, a bit of a context switch. I imagine many of you are dealing with something very similar. So, so thanks again for making the effort to be here and particularly allocating an hour of your life for, for this particular session. There's a lot of great things to see and thank you for being here today. Uh, my name is Blake. I'm with AWS Security. Uh, I joined the team about a year and a half ago and in my current role, I help automate some of the security and compliance workflows internally. And prior to that, I was a customer of AWS and uh, it's, it's needless to say that I drank a lot of the Kool-Aid. Uh, I saw that some of the security and operational benefits of building on AWS and was very compelled to join the team and try to share some of those lessons uh, with other AWS customers. So I'm stoked to be here today to share with you some of those lessons and best practices that you can take home and apply to your shop. I'm also uh, stoked to uh, introduce this guy up here, Rob Widoff. He's from Coinbase. He'll be uh, co-presenting. Uh, Rob is a, a perennial presenter here, and for a pretty good reason. Uh, his squad is pretty world-class when it comes to building uh, security and operational practices on top of AWS, and he's going to share some pretty compelling and exciting stories about baking best practices and some security automation bits uh, into their stack over at Coinbase. So I am personally uh, excited for when Rob gets up here. Uh, so from this session, you should expect to uh, hear me spewing for about 20 minutes or so. And once I'm done, hopefully you will have learned a little bit more about what CIS benchmarks are, uh, how to apply these things to your accounts. And that means audit them and also secure your accounts with these benchmarks. And then also learn a little bit about CIS's critical controls and what the heck these things are and how you can adopt them uh, for your account as well. And then finally, like I said, Rob will come up and basically show off how his team has automated everything that I'm about to say and uh, also realize some other pretty cool business metrics related to developer velocity while also keeping a very high security bar. So that's a, a pretty cool story. Uh, given that you're here in this session, I imagine that security is on your mind and maybe you have some of these questions. Perhaps you're wondering, am I doing the right stuff? Is there anything I should be doing better? I mean, what are best practices and what is prudent in terms of configuring my AWS account from a security perspective? And I imagine many of you have roles in your organizations where you need to make some assertion about the security quality of an account. And I imagine many of you have roles where uh, you're building an account and someone's going to come kick the tires and poke at it and see how it stands up. And so having some set of expectations on both sides of that table would be convenient, right? Like expectations when they're set and met in personal relationships and business relationships, things generally go better. And the same thing holds true really with security expectations for anything, including an AWS account. And so I'd like to introduce a company called the Center for Internet Security. Uh, they've been around for about 20 years. Uh, they're a nonprofit. And basically what they started doing is working with the IT industry to create best practices for securing your typical IT components, right? These are your Windows boxes, your Linux boxes, your phones, your laptops, your databases, your web servers. And they come up with these checklists. They're hardening guides. You've all seen them. Your tools have scanned them. And this is what they do. Uh, so they have two resources, basically, that they produce that uh, we're going to dive into a bit more today. And one is those benchmarks, so these are hardening guides, and the other is their critical controls. Uh, just a show of hands, have folks heard of CIS? 
Yeah, good crew. Good crew. Uh, how about the critical controls? Folks using those? Okay, cool. Uh, so I'll just spend a couple seconds. It sounds like folks are pretty familiar with this goop. Uh, just to differentiate between what a benchmark is and a critical control. And you'll see when we talk about an AWS, an AWS benchmark, there's a lot of overlap with what you would see from uh, the security controls that CIF produces. But at a high level, the benchmarks are very technology specific. They provide prescriptive guidance. So you get a play-by-play -play on how to evaluate an account and how to establish a given security posture in an account. Same thing goes for all the other benchmarks. They're like, for example, there's a hardening guide for Amazon Linux 2016.03, Red Hat uh, Linux 5, 6, and 7. So that's the specificity of these things. And they contain a set of security settings that have some relevance to you. Um, and they prescribe a particular state, tell you why it should be in that state, and ultimately how to audit it. On the other side of it, there's these, con these critical controls. Uh, there's 20 of them uh, at a very high level. If you, if you break those things down, there ends up being about 150 of them. But we're going to focus on five of those today. Uh, and there's some, some interesting stats that we'll, we'll get into about why we're going to focus on those five. But some uh, short versions of what these controls are, are are listed there, right? And these are things you're already doing. Go get an inventory of your stuff. Know what software is on that stuff. Make sure that software is patched. Configure some things. Monitor some logs. Train some humans. Trim some privileges down. Uh, these are things that are, you're probably all pretty familiar with. Uh, the challenge often is, is doing this consistently and pervasively across your account. And that's uh, what we're going to try to help you um, bring home to your shop today if that's an area where you're looking for some love. Uh, so to, to dive into benchmarks a little bit more, uh, it's important to, to note that these are developed by subject matter experts. So if you crack open the Docker benchmark and you look at the contributors, you'll see the names of humans that actually commit code to Docker. If you crack open the Cisco benchmark, you'll see CCIEs and folks on Cisco staff and humans that have roles in organizations that run businesses and rely on their Cisco gear. So uh, you can see from the list there, these cover quite a gamut. These are technologies that you're probably already using. And if you're harvesting links, I would, I would definitely recommend uh, go to that first one. This is a list of all of CIS's 140-plus benchmarks. These are free to download and use to secure various components of your account. Uh, so the, the title of this is, you know, let's talk about CIS benchmarks in your AWS account. just want to call out that there is an Amazon Linux benchmark. Uh, we're not going to dive into that today. That's been around for a few years it goes into your, your typical OS scanner. Uh, there's also a new benchmark released for securing end-tier uh, web stacks. And so that's for exactly that. Uh, but today, we're going to dive into the uh, foundations benchmark that CIS released uh, earlier this year and just recently updated. Uh, that bottom link I also encourage folks to uh, get involved with is basically how you get involved in CIS's consensus process. So if you have subject matter expertise in any of this stuff, particularly maybe Amazon Web Services security, you can get involved and contribute to the discussion around setting uh, what best practice looks like. And I'll, I'll get into why that's uh, significant here. Uh, so um, when I talk about having best practices and a common and broad understanding of what best practices looks like, uh, it's, uh, and I can say that these, these, there's common and broad best practices for a lot of technologies, like the, the benchmarks that were up there before. Uh, it's important to note that many of you, like you said, are already using these benchmarks, and some maybe don't know it. Uh, there's, there's 25 security vendors that already bake in CIS's benchmark content uh, into their products. And so some of those, just as examples, are Tenable and Symantec, Rapid7, Qualys. No favor to these. These are just you know, organizations that have a footprint that scan things and bake CIS's content in them. Uh, there's also over 1,000 organizations that go just directly to CIS and say, hey, give me your benchmarks and the other value props that you provide, 
And these aren't fly-by-night orgs. These are like Adobe and NASA and Emerson, and you can read the list there. If you're curious what other folks adopt these guidance, you can just check out that roster link uh, as well. Uh, the other interesting intersection with CIS and what drives a lot of folks to use the benchmark is, you can see this is just a snippet from PCI DSS. It basically says, you know, if you have systems that touch card data, it's probably a good idea to uh, securely configure those things. And if you want some help with that, you know, go check out the benchmarks. And also ISO, SANS, and NIST uh, may have some guides you can check out as well. So this also drives folks to uh, incorporate benchmark content into their tools and adopt it uh, at their organizations. So this is just the, the overview of the AWS uh, Web Services Foundation benchmark. This was just uh, updated again in uh, November, originally released in February. Uh, you can see here that there's, there's not a lot of knobs, right? There's 52 of them. If you have a bunch of accounts, that number gets to be a multiplier. And the takeaway here is, is this isn't a, a real long list of all of the sweet and elaborate things you can do to an AWS account. And reInvent this year is, is jammed with sessions that show things that make me drool as a nerd for reacting, responding, preventing, detecting all of these types of activities that you might want to, to monitor. But it's important to also make sure you have a real solid foundation with your account. And that's what this benchmark tries to accomplish. So these aren't things that, um, these are things that folks should generally do. And if you're not doing them, it doesn't mean someone should get their big red marker out and write fail all over your account. It just means there should probably be a dialogue about what your compensating control is. So this is an example of one of the recommendations in the benchmark. I, I think most folks probably do this. But basically, it tells you what to do, right? Turn on CloudTrail in all of the places. And, and this is important, right? So if you don't have CloudTrail turned on, you have an incident, you really have no idea what to do. You, you don't know what's happened in your account. If you're trying to baseline your account and detect anomalies, you, you really can't unless this type of uh, information is turned on, so CloudTrail collection. Uh, and you can see when you look at this, uh, it's pretty clear up there, uh, that these are very actionable documents, right? There's what should I do and why, and then how do I audit this thing? And if you find your home, or maybe there's a colleague back at your office that finds their home in the console, and they want to click their way through and audit, uh, you can read the procedure. It's click that link, do step two, three, four, five, and six, and it tells you, yep, everything's cool here, or everything's not cool here. If you find your home at the command line, or you're more of a programmer, you want to automate some things, copy and paste that CLI, uh, put it in audit.sh, and you can start to glue together some automation. Uh, we've done some of that in, in the form of CloudFormation templates to save you some of that time, but uh, that's the level of specificity that these things provide, so it's very clear whether things are in a good state or, or not a good state. Uh, the second half of these, of these benchmark recommendations are basically how to fix it. It's the, it's the same story, right? Here's the procedure, run down that thing, go crazy, click your mouse, or uh, run that command. You could get fancy and, and write some code to do this as well. But ultimately, just wanted to um, drive home that these are very actionable for anyone to just take home and go apply immediately to your shops. So uh, to the meat of it, uh, I'm really stoked to announce that there's a, a GitHub repo being launched this week. There's two resources in it that uh, you should check out and take home. Uh, one of them is a Python script where I think Henrik's in the room. Folks should go check out his session. I'll have the details on that in the next slide. But basically what it does is it evaluates your account against the benchmark. Uh, the second item is a CloudFormation template uh, that a buddy Rob Barnes wrote, and basically this will establish a lot of the configuration states uh, for the particular benchmark. And so if we dive into the CloudFormation template a little bit, uh, so 
To be upfront, this doesn't do every single thing in the benchmark. There are a couple of gaps that need to be filled in still. But what it'll do is set up config, the rules, some alarms, some SNS notifications, and um, basically you click this a couple minutes later, you'll start getting alarms, and I can dive in and show you here what uh, the screenshot shows, which is ultimately um, an image of the config console. And so this shows a bunch of config rules that have failed. These are config rules that align with the benchmark. And if you use AWS config, uh, do folks use config in here pretty much? No? Okay. Well, we'll give you some value prop on config. Uh, if you turn that thing on, what happens is every resource that is in your account and all of your regions basically gets snapshot, gets a snapshot of it, and any change to that also gets snapshotted. So if you need to figure out when something broke and why it broke and who did it, uh, config gives you that story. And so if we zoom in a little bit, um, when you click on one of these rows, uh, you'll dive in and it shows you which specific assets are not configured in a manner that's compliant with these particular rules. So you can very quickly identify and resolve these issues. So and this again, this is fire up the CloudFormation template, hit go, and these rules are created. And you'll even get alerts to your inbox that say, hey man, someone made some changes to uh, some insensitive, some sensitive components of my account. So again, this is a couple buttons, turn it on, and you've got some alarming. Uh, this is the benchmark audit report that um, Henrik wrote. The, the scoop here is you get a list of all the things that passed and failed, and again, the offending resources are showed up, uh, sorry, are listed in this report. And you can see that a user one has an inline policy attached, and it's desirable for that not to happen. Attach those to roles and groups and put users into those. Uh, and you can also see a couple other failures there as well. So again, this is code you can go and run, get from that repo, run it against your account, and you'll have a report that you can just run through and uh, take some action on. So at a very high level uh, from the benchmarks, um, it's, it's important to establish a, a solid foundation and have it be common and broadly understood what best practice looks like. And CIS helps with that because there's a vendor ecosystem that puts their controls into their products. There's already four vendors that incorporate the, uh, the, the foundation's benchmark into their code base. So this might show up in a, a vendor uh, that you're using sometime soon. Uh, they're very actionable, and again, from a skills perspective, you don't need to be a super tech whiz to use these benchmarks, but if you are, you can take uh, some of the aspects of it and incorporate them to build your own automation or leverage the resources that are in this GitHub repo that uh, we've shipped this week. Uh, and definitely download the benchmarks and get involved with the consensus process, because uh, ultimately you all have expertise and the more voices at these tables to set what's best current practice, like, the better for everybody. So uh, we're going to make a, a quick shift over to the critical controls. Uh, and so I'm going to read this out loud, and I'm sorry for doing it, but it's sort of compelling. Uh, organizations that apply just the first five CIS controls can reduce their risk of cyber attack by around 85%. Right now, who doesn't want some of that? Like, sign me up. So there's a link. You can learn more about these controls. And it's important to note that these are a prioritized set. There's about 20 of them. Again, if you break them up, there's, there's a lot more than that. But the takeaway here is the very first one, which is inventory or stuff, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. The second one, inventory or software, that makes a lot of sense. So um, definitely get involved with these things. Uh, they're, they're quite high value. So the top five critical controls uh, that Rob's going to dive into and demonstrate how uh, Coinbase adopted these things are listed in front of you. 
Again, these aren't super rocket science. I think many of you do a lot of these things in your, uh, at your shops already. And the challenge becomes, how do we go and make sure that we're doing these things consistently and across all of our resources uh, in our accounts? And so uh, if folks could help me in welcoming Rob to come up and uh, dive into a little bit more about what Coinbase is doing and how they're automating their accounts and these best practices. Thank you, Blake. Thank you, AV man in the back. Uh, so my name is Rob Whitoff, and thank you guys for having me here today. So I lead the infrastructure team at Coinbase, and for those of you that haven't used us or heard of us before, we are the largest uh, American cryptocurrency platform, so we move a lot of money through our infrastructure. It uh, looks something like this in motion. If you want to buy or sell or exchange Bitcoin, we are the place to do it in the United States. And I've been at the company for a little over two years now. And so we've scaled to a number of countries since I've been here. We've also scaled to quite a few new users. But one of the other things we've looked a lot at as we've scaled and grown our security program is developer productivity as well. So when I joined the company, we had one monolithic service. And this chart on the right here is showing you the number of services that we were deploying over time. We talk a lot about microservices, but we don't see a lot of charts like this, so I really wanted to highlight this. We're now running about 95 services at Coinbase, and that chart has been going up and to the right. Uh, we also look at developer productivity. So as more and more security controls are brought into our environment, we want to use that as an enabling uh, faculty for our program to make sure our engineers can still ship code rapidly in a production to, while we automate our security controls as aggressively as possible. So right now, the average engineer at Coinbase deploys about 16 times per month. So that's almost every uh, uh, working day that they're in the office. There's some shipment going out to production, and we're really proud of that velocity inside of the company. One of the security um, um, data points that I like to reference that Blake mentioned briefly is the 2015 Verizon uh, Data Breach Investigation Report, where they referenced 99.9% .9 of the exploited vulnerabilities they'd seen in the last year were not some wild zero-day. They were not some novel attack. They were referencing a CVE that had already been made public, where there was a patch available, where there was public knowledge that that vulnerability existed. People hadn't patched their systems, and attackers were able to use that to instigate a breach in some environment. And I think this ties really well into the critical security controls that Blake mentioned, where before we think about building some wild security program and protecting against zero days and doing something crazy, we need a strong foundation. And if we don't have that strong foundation, we're wasting our time doing anything else. So we spent a lot of time thinking about those critical security controls. I'm going to walk through how we've implemented the top five. So for the first critical security control, an inventory of all the authorized and unauthorized devices on your network. Well, this becomes a really nice thing in the cloud. This is not an, an environment before 802.1x where uh, we can see what's on all of our physical networks in the office. Uh, we get an API where we can see every single NIC or ENI that's running inside our account. But where this becomes a challenge is as we start scaling our programs, we go from one AWS account 
to two to three to four and more and more and more. And we get to a point where we no longer have one console where we can search for a NIC or an IP address and we can log and we can find out what's running on that service. So one of the first things we did that's been really important to us, a small service that gets a lot of use of Coinbase, is a tool that consolidates all of our accounts into one place where we can search for an IP and rapidly tie any, uh, any device on any one of our networks back to what's running on that box and who's responsible for it. So this has become a really responsive service where we can search for uh, one service. Like we uh, run our exchanges called GDAX. It's one of our big services. We can search for our web nodes, but we can also do things like search for some of the older boxes in our networks where everyone's got that one snowflake you haven't deployed in a couple of years. We can see where our older boxes are across our network that may or may not have been patched. Um, the next thing we do is to make sure we can respond quickly when we are looking through flow logs or see some interesting device on our network is we make sure every box in our environment is always tagged. And we have a set of mandatory tags that every, uh, every NIC or every EC2 instance uh, must have tagged on our network. Uh, but we also have a set of recommended tags. And what we really want to do is when uh, something goes bump in the night, we don't want to page the infrastructure team. We don't want to go directly to the security team if we don't have to. We want to live in a DevOps environment. We want to go back to our service owners and help them uh, live in a self-service world where they can manage their devices. The next thing we do is we use CloudWatch events. So whenever there's a new box that's launched inside of our environment, CloudWatch events will give us an alert like this that'll say, hey, there's been an EC2 state change where we've gone from a pending to a running state or a stop to a running state. And uh, we'll pull those CloudWatch events into an SNS notification. We'll then send that to an SQS queue. And so one of the things we want to do is uh, proactively look at all the new boxes that have been launched inside of our networks. And though you can't uh, tag a box uh, on the same API call as where it's launched from, what we'll do is we'll send that launch notification into a delayed SQS queue. We'll then have a cron lambda that's pulling from that queue. And if within a few minutes after a box has been launched, it hasn't been tagged conforming to the way we want, uh, we want that to be seen inside of our environment, we'll go ahead and terminate that box. And if we're terminating something in its first three minutes of life, that's generally a safe time to do it. If it's already been running for a few days or a few weeks, it might be running some core production workload and now terminating it's a really hard tasks. So this rapid response inside of our environment helps prevent that cruft and decay and those snowflakes across our cloud. Okay. The second control, once we've, uh, author, uh, once we've inventoried the devices on our network, we want to be able to inventory all of the software that's running on every single box inside of our cloud. And so, again, we start with a, a proactive way of defending from launching any things that aren't authorized inside of our network. Uh, we try to minimize the number of AMIs that we're running, and we're able to use some advanced IM markup uh, to restrict the ability of our staff to launch any unapproved uh, AMIs inside of our network. And so using the Flourney value string equals parent accounts uh, uh, under the EC2 owner attribute that boxes are launched with, uh, we're able to restrict staff from launching AMIs that have been created outside of our accounts. So we're not launching unapproved or unaware AMIs off the marketplace that may or may not have uh, uh, software that's not up to spec for our security standards inside. 
Um, and so you'll see a lot of people at reInvent this week talk about how their infrastructure is perfect, they've done everything up to par, and everything looks like this. But I do really want to stress the snowflakes. So I say we minimize the number of AMIs in our environment. We work really hard to launch everything in the same core OS base. We run everything in Docker inside. But we're only able to do that for about 95% of our environment. And it's a top 5% there where... Uh, this is showing a percentile chart of all of the AMIs running inside of our network. So 95% of, of our network, we've been able to standardize. It's hardened and secured up to our standards. But we do have that 5% on top that's running some other AMI for generally some really good use case. But we want to be really aware of the snowflakes inside of our environment. The next thing we do after we've tried to minimize uh, the variety of AMIs running inside is we want to harden all of those. And we use a tool called, called server spec where after we've packed an AMI, uh, we'll run the equivalent of, of unit and functional test on that AMI, and we will not allow that to ship or go through our pipeline if it hasn't passed some rudimentary test like this. And having this kind of framework in place gives us a, a mechanism to evolve and incrementally add more security, more controls, more validation inside of our environment. This has helped us grow uh, our program quite a bit. Once we've started to harden that AMI, we then want to uh, reactively validate everything that's been run inside. And this is a great use case for AWS config. So whenever config notices that there has been a new AMI launch inside of our environment, um, we will send an SNS notification that goes into a Lambda that can verify that we're only running the AMIs that we intended to be running. So we have those proactive controls. There may be some way past them we haven't thought of, and we want to reactively have the ability to audit everything inside our environment so we get the left and the right hand here. Okay. Um, now that we're going inside of that AMI, we still have other pieces of software. We run almost everything in Docker containers at Coinbase today. And in those containers, we want to be really aware of, of what OSs we're running, where our software comes from, and make sure that we have an ability to scan it. And we found the best, uh, base, the best base OS for our Docker containers for us to scan inside is the latest Ubuntu base. We run an Ubuntu 16.04 base in our containers. And then we manage different language distributions inside, so we make sure those are patched. And we have a team constantly looking at those languages so we can rapidly update and roll out changes across our fleet when uh, something needs to change. So we have this graph of containers inside where we'll, we'll start from one base. We have a first layer of derived language images. Uh, we have some derived framework images, and then our application images will derive at the bottom of that graph. Okay. Now, for how we're bringing this all together, we've got a lot of primitives that I just showed, but it's really important to us that we have a streamlined deployment interface so that when an engineer approaches a new, a, a new project, we want to have a clean contract with that engineer. So we have an internal deployment tool that we're hoping to open source soon called CodeFlow that brings all of our AMI uh, development and our container development together. So we'll uh, take in a Docker file, a Docker Compose file, and an environment file, and we'll deploy our 12-factor apps in some of our AWS resources through this tool as well. Okay. Um, through this deployment tool, uh, we have this integrated with several security scanning tools. So we use things like uh, CoreOS's Claire product to scan all of the uh, libraries in all of the Docker containers that we're shipping out. Okay. We then take another step inside to get our audit capabilities leveled up inside of our OS, where though we are scanning what goes into our AMI, we're also going to watch all of the processes, all of the containers, all of the things running inside that box from a daemon we have inside. We send all of the events from inside our boxes into a Kinesis bus, where we'll pull and process around a billion events per day. We'll be 
process through the stream that are looking at everything that goes bump in the night. If we see some kind of anomaly, we can kick off some investigation inside. Okay. So now we've looked at some of the software base, but now looking at how we've secured configurations for both that hardware and software, we're able to do a few more things for the third CSC. Uh, the first place I want to start is in some of our networking. So for the networking we have, we have public and private uh, subnets, as is one of the best practices, where the boxes we have launched inside won't have a directly routable public IP address. Uh, these will be addressable through managed NATs that are running in our public, in our public subnets that provide an extra layer of security around what's uh, able to access our boxes running inside of our private subnets. Uh, we're able to do something similar that we've, we've done with IAM before, where we can use some uh, of the other advanced concepts uh, looking at constraining the resources that we can apply to an EC2 run instances command. So we're able to actually restrict the ability at the IAM layer of our staff to deploy boxes outside of our private subnets. And this has been a really neat control for us. Uh, it's important, though, that we have good alerting back to our engineers. You can get very obscure error messages if you haven't clearly communicated uh, what can be launched and what can't be launched. And so one of the tools we use to pull those error messages back are when people try um, or when people have an access violation through IAM, we'll use CloudTrail to look at that. We'll alert the offending user. Uh, we, and we can also provide an, an extra alerting capability to our infrastructure and security teams. So when there are privileged actions that take place, we want to make sure there's some independent uh, function looking at that. And this actually happened to me uh, earlier today where I was performing some administrative action and I had one of my security engineers called up and said, hey, just wanted to make sure uh, this was actually you performing that function and I could not have been happier that we have this left hand, right hand. We have independent validations inside of our environment. Okay. Uh, we then want to, again, independently validate that. So this is another great use case for config, where we can look at where all of our boxes are running. If we see some kind of violation, we, we can escalate that, again, through a similar config, SNS, and Lambda pipeline. For the fourth CSC, uh, now that we're defining some secure configurations, it's easy to launch some application into production, you scan it once you've deployed it, and you let that sit out in production and atrophy for six months, 12 months, 18 months, until it's so riddled with vulnerabilities that becomes how you're compromised. And we never want to find ourselves in that state. So we want to continuously be monitoring everything inside our environment. So one of the first things we focus on here is our deployment pipeline. So we spend a lot of time making sure we have a clear pipeline from uh, where our developers are uh, testing and creating our applications and putting that out, out into production. And by forcing all of this through one pipeline, it gives us a great ability to introspect into uh, what's been created, what's running, what's been launched, and exactly what software is on that server. Uh, we run an entirely immutable environment, so we don't allow engineers to make changes once a box has been launched into production. If they want to launch something new, uh, they will make changes in our development suite. They will redeploy, and we'll do a blue-green teardown and destroy all of those old boxes inside. We do not change our servers once they've been launched. We do not create snowflakes. We run immutable as I think the cloud is meant to be used. Okay, So in this deployment pipeline for the security scanning we have, uh, the way we started this is we independently started adding security scanning onto projects like GDAX. Uh, this is our exchange. Uh, GDAX had its own security scanning. We then added security scanning onto Coinbase.com and had its own security scanning. 
And then for some of our internal apps, we started adding security scanning as well. And this really didn't scale well. This started out great for us to look at a couple applications. But remember that chart I showed at the beginning where we went from one service to now 95 or so microservices inside Coinbase. And we found ourselves having internal new applications that didn't have the same security scanning tools that we had on all of our other applications. And so thinking about that 99.9% .9 stat from the DBIR, that wasn't acceptable to us. That's something we really needed to fix. And so one of the big projects we focused on last quarter was taking our bespoke security scanning out of individual projects and focusing that into our deployment pipeline. So whenever we deploy to development, production, or a sandbox environment, we're going to index exactly what version of that software is running. We're going to instrument and run our security scans in our continuous integration environment. And we're going to keep running those scans as our services are out in production. So as our CVE lists update and new vulnerabilities are made uh, uh, available to us, we want to know when and where we're vulnerable as soon as possible. And we're most able to do that uh, in the deploy phase of our applications. The next thing we do, and this is one of my favorite things we do inside of our infrastructure, is we have what we call our 30-day program or our 30-day fleet age hard requirement. And what this means to us is that we do not allow EC2 instances to live for more than 30 days inside of our environment. This is a really hard rule for us, and this has helped protect uh, us from a lot of atrophy inside of our environment. It's helped us focus an incredible amount on automation, and we've built a lot of that into our cloud today. This is a chart of our median server age inside of Coinbase. And uh, I'm not too happy showing this because it's much worse than where it normally is. But this is, this is showing on the y-axis our fleet age. Uh, the median age of our servers, when I took this screenshot, was between 4 and 10 days. So 50% of our servers had been deployed within the last four days. And the reason I'm not happy about this is because it's usually about 24 hours. This was just a bad week for us. Um, so this is what our stats looked like when I pulled this, where the 50th percentile, 4.6 days old, and the oldest server inside of our environment was 27.7 days. As that gets closer to 30 days, that's now in a queue where we're going to make sure that's either redeployed manually or if uh, we or ideally that'll be deployed in some automated fashion. We find ourselves in this workflow where there might be a new box. We're not yet quite sure or comfortable automating the deployment or the zero downtime redeployment of the underlying hardware. But as we get more comfortable with the service, we're going to automate the heck out of that. And now for the fifth control, so for controlling the use of administrative privileges. So the idea of administrators makes me really uncomfortable. We are living um, um, at Coinbase in an environment where we're moving uh, money or cryptocurrency through our environment. It is not acceptable to me for any individual, myself included, to have privileged access into our environments. We can do some really good uh, ways of retroactively looking at after someone's gone in, what have they done, but we want to make sure we're controlling uh, so that when this laptop is compromised or your laptop is compromised, I don't want that to ever be used to put our customers at harm. So we spent a lot of time removing the idea of administrators from our environment. One of the first ways we did that inside AWS is we started namespacing through IAM the resources that we have. So we want to limit the blast radius when there's a compromise inside of our environment uh, so that uh, no more than is necessary is uh, uh, under attack or at risk. And so we can start when we're looking at who can create what users, and we can use IAM variables. So I with username Rob can create IAM users or roles or policies that are prefixed with the name Rob, but I can't touch any other policy or user that is not under my namespace. 
And you can extend this to a few AWS services. Not all support this right now, but S3 has really good support for this, where we can also namespace S3 bu buckets. So in our development, in our staging environments, people can have their own namespaces. We also support our own team namespaces, so you can collaborate with your peers, but you can't overextend what we want you to have access to. But where we've really been successful in our war against the idea of administrators inside of our environment is in uh, removing single points of failures, which is what I think of administrative controls uh, to be, and focusing on the idea of consensus. Okay? So in, inside of our deployment tool, uh, when we are going to make some change, say I want to change the port that this box is listening on. Uh, it's right now listening on uh, or mapping port 80 to port, port 8000. Uh, say I want to change that, I can change and save that, but I'm not going to make a direct change in a production. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make a proposal. So this proposal can be made uh, uh, fairly broadly inside of our environment. I want as many people as possible to feel empowered to make changes in production, but I don't want those people to actually have direct unfettered access. Uh, once that change has been proposed, we have a diffing screen where some other individual, uh, so we're making sure there's no single point of failure, uh, can now approve that change. Uh, and once that's been approved, we can push those changes out. We're able, to, we're able to do a lot more interesting cryptographic uh, consensus controls. We use a lot of Shamir secret sharing inside. Uh, we use a lot of consensus controls on how some of our uh, hot wallet and our money moving service is happening. There's some really good cryptography around this, uh, but this is how we built this in our deployment tool and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk another time about uh, the rest of our consensus systems. So now that we've looked at some of our critical security controls, we put those in place. Something that I've, uh, I think has been a lot of fun for us is being able to stress test those. One of the best things about security, I think, is our ability to red team and game day and actually exercise those controls in a real-world environment after we put them in a place. And I want to show you how we've been doing that at Coinbase. Okay, so for one of the last stress tests we focused on, uh, I drew a lot of inspiration from this quote. So this w uh, came from Rob Joyce, uh, head of NSA's uh, Tau, in a rather uncharacteristic public talk at Enigma earlier this year. And he said, we put the time in to know, it, uh, to know your networks better than the people who designed them and the people who are securing them. You know what you intended to use, but we know what's actually in use inside of there. Right? I think this ties really well back to that 99.9% .9 stat from the DBIR, where you may think that 95% of your environment is perfectly up to par, but it's that one server that you've forgotten about, you haven't packed, you're not quite sure what's there, the developer that launched that box, he's not with the company anymore, that's the server you get compromised through, and it's unacceptable for us to have those servers inside of our environment. Okay? And then he went on to say, if you really want to protect your network, you really have to know your network. And so something we care a lot about at Coinbase is really knowing our network. So remember when I said we had 95% of our service, services on our master hardened AMI, we've got a great pipeline around this, but we've also got this other 5%. And so thinking about this quote from Rob, uh, we thought, what if there was a compromise somewhere randomly inside of our environment? And to really stress test this, we took that a step further, and we said, well, why don't we just assume there's a vulnerability everywhere? What if we assume there's a vulnerability in every single box inside of our environment? So it looks something like this. So we prepared an exercise last quarter that we called Scorched Earth to rebuild the entire environment of Coinbase in 24 hours from scratch, destroy every single server, and rebuild fresh. 
Uh, we could have done this as an exercise to ship patches, but if there's some wild vulnerability inside, you might be able to patch, but it's really hard to prove that, that, uh, that some attacker hasn't left some other tools on that box. And so the best way we have to be sure that our environment is clean is to continue running in an immutable fashion, rebuild from scratch after patching, and destroy the entirety of our old environment. So this was scorched earth for us. And so the way this started was we picked a hypothetical exploit. Uh, we didn't actually use Ghost in this case, but we assumed that every single box uh, inside of our environment had some indicator on it, and we defined a clear indicator that we knew was on a box, and we said anywhere that we find this on a box, we have to rebuild that server. So we looked at all of our boxes, we assumed all of our AMIs were compromised, and immediately went to work. So we started with our uh, deployment automation tools. We use Packer to rebuild our AMI. We use server spec to now define a new spec that looks for that uh, uh, malicious case. We're able to find that hypothetical vulnerability and verify that that's no longer in our AMI. Now we can start shipping out and redeploying our environment on this new AMI. We were able to do this within about an hour to get this new AMI rolling out across 95% of our fleet. The next thing we did is we looked at our container graph and we said the same thing. We're going to assume every single container at Coinbase has some hypothetical compromise in it. So uh, all of these are red for us on our list. And so what we did was we used our graph to patch our base. We have one uh, hardened base that we understand really well. Uh, we used that and we started flowing that down to the, uh, the child containers underneath. We eventually flowed that down to all of our application containers and again continued with the redeployment to start rolling over into a brand new clean environment. We used our deployment automation tool tooling extremely heavily for this, where this would be a really cumbersome exercise if we weren't able to automate this aggressively. And we were able to rebuild a lot of this redeployment, this rolling, this patching, this validation into the core of our deployment pipeline. So the way in which all of us work at Coinbase are tied into uh, uh, rebuilding and redeploying. So this is not some bespoke activity. This is deploying like normal. And just like I showed at the beginning, uh, the average engineer at Coinbase is deploying 16 times a month. We're exercising this a lot. We've got a lot of practice with this. And so as we grew a couple hours in this exercise, we started to see uh, the, the original hypothetically vulnerable services uh, drill down quite a bit. But it was that small set of snowflakes at the bottom that were really difficult for us to roll. But we kept those in scope, and it was really important to us that we still had the ability to roll those within this 24-hour score strip period. So something we were able to use heavily was, remember that tool I showed where we were able to discover all of our assets on our network? Uh, we used it really heavily here to search for all of our older boxes. We divided and conquered. We used what uh, had been fully automated. We used what had some manual documentation or runbooks associated with them. And we made sure all of those were being continuously uh, redeployed as well. Um, one of my favorite photos from this, this is uh, one of my colleagues, Luke, on the team. Uh, Luke's about seven bottles deep into caffeinated tea at this point. This is maybe 12 or 15 hours into the exercise. And I, I, I think he transitioned to temper off with beer towards the right-hand side of that. Um, but we, we had a really fun time. As, as, as a team, this was a really good team exercise for us. And it ended up taking us about 23 and a half hours. We ended up being constrained in some of our large database clusters inside. It took a long time to migrate some of our data off of our I2 instances. Uh, and we, we had a slow rolling redeploy. It took, I, I think, 23 hours and 45 minutes, but we were able to hit our 24-hour goal. And so at the end of that exercise, I was extremely proud of the team I get to work with. I think we have a world-class environment. I couldn't be happier getting to work with these guys every day. So in summary, what we were able to do was define and meet our baseline. 
Uh, we've integrated our baseline really heavily with our deployment pipeline inside. It's one thing to have a baseline, but it's another thing to have that deeply automated and built into the way in which all of your staff are working. And we believe when security is done right and when you define a clear usable baseline, this should be an empowering feature that your, to your team that actually helps them move faster, not slower, because they now have more confidence to ship secure code into your environment. The next thing we've done is standardize and automate very, very heavily. And this has been important to us where uh, when you have those snowflakes in your environment, when you're running everything on Ubuntu, but you've got that one RHEL box or you've got that one CentOS box, you're just not quite sure how to, how to administrate that. That's where you slow down. That's where you get compromised. And so we want to standardize as much as possible. And once we've done that, we want to automate the heck out of our environment. And that's exactly what we've done. And we continue reinforcing that with our 30-day program where if we have a box that's not heavily automated and we're redeploying that once every 30 days, we're going we're gonna to get sick of that pretty quickly, and we're going to automate the heck out of that to make sure uh, we don't have to keep manually doing something once every 30 days. And lastly, uh, validating all of this through 100% events. Your baseline is only as powerful as uh, how uh, thoroughly it's been rolled out. If you baseline 95% of your environment again, but it's that 5% that you're not sure how to baseline or you're not sure how to rapidly clean up or patch, that's how you're going to be compromised. So that's what we've been up to at Coinbase. Thank you so much for joining. I think we've got a few minutes for questions if anybody wants to stick around and uh, make sure to complete your evaluations after that. Thanks.